All grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some old-time favorites. Uh, I mentioned some of your former pastors who indeed for myself and my tenure over at Peace and Camarillo, they were some of my favorites. And uh, by name, Jim Nelson, Bob Heller, Travis Goosey, and now one of my favorites, Ernie. Uh, he and I are the ones that can't grow full beards like those other guys who played Jesus in the Rose Parade. That, you know, it just, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't even get a five o'clock shadow. So we have our favorites from place to place. And recently I heard of uh, one of the professors at St. Louis who is, uh, well, for many a student, one of the favorites. And I read a little devotion about this Dr. Horace Hummel. Now, I never had him because I was doing remote learning at uh, the Uh, St. Louis, and then I was doing in person in Irvine, so I never had the privilege, but to listen to uh, the students of Dr. Horace Hummel, it's as if they canonized him as a saint. So I'm going to talk a little bit about him and how it leads nicely into our gospel reading that we just heard. So he's in St. Louis, Dr. Hummel, and his students had varying degree of fondness for him. Because he had this no-nonsense approach. You've met people like this. Dr. Hummel, for better or for worse, though uh, really the students say it's better. He regularly challenged students' views of the Old Testament. And it's good to get challenged from time to time, old or new for that matter. In particular, he challenged the presuppositions that were so often derived from what we might call American pop psychology, uh, rather than really stemming from any serious study in God's word. So, for instance, if you were to tell Dr. Hummel, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. You remember that expression? You heard that? You think there might be a Bible verse for that? There ain't. Uh, It's in hesitation, second hesitations, right? But uh, Dr. Hummel responded to that with an incredulous look anytime he heard it. And he pointed out time and again that although God destroys the power of sin, he still sends unrepentant sinners to hell. In other words, uh, it's not a very clear or helpful way of speaking about the Bible's teaching. So it's better to just stop saying this. Uh, The other one that you might have heard is God helps those who help themselves. You can probably dwindle down the context to a particular point where that kind of makes sense, but it's probably more misleading than helpful. Another one of those from American pop theology. So there was this one occasion now when Dr. Hummel was teaching on the purity laws out of Leviticus. Uh, Numbers 19 as well is another place in scripture. And if you read these sections of the Torah, you'll find how God declared some meat clean and some meat unclean. And how skin disease, a.k.a. leprosy, was the, the cause of impurity as well. Um, and even bodily emissions were included in, in this list of things that are impure. So then in Numbers 19, there are all these regulations regarding how one is supposed to touch, for example, dead bodies um, and try to deal with the impurity that results from that. And anyway, in attempts to make sense of all these commands, some students offered their view along these lines, and you'll even find some commentators agreeing about this view of um, Old Testament health and hygiene. The ancient world 
did not enjoy the benefits of modern science, so say these. And so this was God's way of protecting his people from, for instance, the disease of trichinosis uh, from pork, uh, undercooked. And this is a common way of explaining these laws as to why they're there and for God's chosen people. But Dr. Hummel was having none of this. Uh, well, you know, he began, which was one of his favorite ways to begin. I don't recall that anyone came up with the cure for trichinosis in 30 AD after Jesus was resurrected and all foods were declared clean. You might remember that from Acts. God told Peter, anything on the plate that I tell you is clean. So now Dr. Hummel is saying, are you asking me whether it's okay to eat meat that's bad for you now? Are you trying to tell me that God cared more for the health of his Old Testament saints than he does for his New Testament people? Uh, in other words, there's a point at which this argument becomes pretty absurd. You can reduce it to absurdity, uh, especially, especially once you learn that these rules don't particularly carry over to the New Testament age and all the Gentiles, right? Dr. Hummel then shut down further discussion by pointing out simply that no explanation is offered there in Leviticus as to why certain animals um, are unclean or certain physical conditions were declared unclean. They were unclean primarily, solely, sufficiently because God declared them unclean. God's word spoke on it, period. But then, delving deeper into the theology of Dr. Hummel, uh, he pointed out that the purity laws were a reminder of every important uh, situation in this creation, and that is we live in a fallen creation. So that's a good reminder that comes from this. Everything, universally speaking, is messed up in this creation. Now, even though God has made Israel his own people, they still lived in a world that was propagated by sin and subject to death because the wages of sin is death, whether talking Old Testament or New Testament. Um, and so people, because of that universal ailment that we call sin, people will die everywhere of all ages. So if you ever wonder whether or not one individual or another is sinful, just uh, ask yourself, would that person die? Uh, babies, they fall into the category. Uh, sweet um, ladies, uh, senior ladies, and uh, good politicians and religious leaders. They all die because we're all subject to sin in this fallen world. So likely, such things as skin diseases and other physical elements, ailments rather, were unclean because they were associated with a fallen creation and the universal presence of death. These things were reminders of death, and this made them unclean. So was God interested in the physical help of, of his people? Well, we can't say that he didn't care, right? Jesus would physically heal somebody, and then he'd tell them their faith has made them whole, or their faith has saved them as, as well. More likely, the purity regulations were just a reminder that we live in a fallen, corrupt world, subject to death, in need of a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And we should never forget that. And try to force this into being the ultimate. If it's the ultimate, we're kind of in trouble, aren't we? Um, I hope when I get to heaven, I, I don't find out that it's just like this experience. 
uh, as thankful as I am for many of my life blessings. But did you notice in today's reading, we find two stories now sandwiched together with this topic that's held in common with both of those incidents. Um, We're talking about uh, death and uncleanliness. So the first story begins with Jairus. He was a synagogue ruler, and he approaches Jesus to request that he, the healer, heal his daughter who is sick. But as they head that way, we get now a second story, a subplot going on at the same time. There's this woman with a 12-year discharge of blood who has suffered greatly, and maybe we can relate to someone like that, where you go to this doctor or that doctor, and they can't seem to help, no matter how much money or time you throw at it. Um, there's, there's just no healing. And there's all too many diseases like that in our planet today. Well, this woman had heard reports, though, about Jesus, the healer. And so she believes she can save her from her own condition if she can just get a hold of his garment, right? But she's afraid to come out to Jesus openly, and maybe we can uh, understand why she's so afraid. So she first touches the garment and is indeed saved from her condition. She can tell right away. And Jesus can tell also that power went forth from him. I don't know how he would do it. I don't have that kind of power. But he knew, and he stops right there on the spot in the middle of the crowd and demands, who touched my garment? Now, even when his disciples try to point out that that's really a ridiculous question, given the masses and the pressing crowds, but Jesus nonetheless continued to ask, who touched me? The woman is afraid. Why do you suppose that is? She never comes forward and confesses. I mean, she nevertheless uh, comes forward finally. And Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Hallelujah. So Jesus commands this woman's faith. It turns out that she did not, after all, need to be afraid of him. But yet again, why was she afraid? Well, um, we'll get back to that in a second. The second story, that subplot, it concludes with Jesus' words to the woman. And uh, note how unusual and amazing this miracle is because Jesus, with all that power, unbeknownst to him, some stranger can touch him and be saved from her physical ailment. Yes, Jesus knows that power went out, but still he saves some without at least initially realizing it. So ironically, This is a surprising testimony to Jesus' power to save. So the story picks up again, and here comes tragedy now. Word comes from Jairus' house. His daughter is dead. Why trouble uh, Jesus, the healer, any longer? See, they had this view of Jesus that he could heal, but that was about it. And they are about to be, in a blessed manner, shocked, surprised. People had this notion that there's just no coming back from dying. Certainly Jesus cannot deal with death, can he? Uh, Yet Jesus responds to this as, well, stop being afraid. He tells the likely uh, already grieving father, just believe. Jesus challenges this man. He challenges us to keep the faith. Even in the midst of bad news, when things look like there's no turning around. Then we come to the climax of the story sandwich with the two subplots going on simultaneously. 
Jesus enters Jairus' home. He enters the room where the girl is lying dead. And the scripture says, he takes her hand. And then he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And the girl is resurrected from the dead and lives again. What have we seen in the Gospel of Mark so far then? We've seen, by the time we get to this section in chapter 5, we've seen that the Lord Jesus, the Holy One, has authority over unclean spirits. Uh, He has authority to forgive sins on earth. And now we see that the Lord Jesus Christ has authority even over death. Uh, Dominus, he is Lord. That's uh, Latin for Lord. He is Lord of all. We see that Jesus has authority to even require the dead to come back. And it wasn't just Jairus' daughter, right? Who else did Jesus raise from the dead? Lazarus. Well, the joining of these two stories likely has a meaning for us to derive. It's likely how these things went down historically. But what else do these things have in common? Well, one thing. Both stories show that the proper response to the inbreaking of God's reign in the uh, person of Jesus Christ is to believe, to trust in him, to stop being afraid and believe. So it's at least biblically here in Mark's gospel, the alternative to faith is not lack of faith, atheism, but it's stop being afraid, trust, and a perfect love casts out that fear. Then there's this too. Both stories have something to do with Old Testament regulations regarding clean and unclean. That's a good message for us to be reminded of as well if we ever think we're in that latter category as unclean. What was that uh, woman afraid of? Uh, so she didn't want to openly tell her story. It's likely she knew her Old Testament and she knew according to the Levitical law um, that she could quite possibly make Jesus unclean if she went all the way and touched him as opposed to just the, the um, garment, outer garment. She might have made him unclean and she would have been felt very bad about that. So here's the bigger question though. Why wasn't Jesus angry with a woman with an issue of blood touching him? The answer might be as surprising to a Jew of the first century as it could be to us. It's because the purity regulations no longer apply, that is, no longer apply at least to Jesus. Remember at how Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came down upon him, Holy Spirit. And you remember at the exorcism, one of the first times he goes into a synagogue, somebody worshiping God in the the seats was demon-possessed. And Jesus commanded that unclean spirit to leave because they recognized Jesus as the Holy One of God. They even cry out, we know who you are. So now Jesus possesses a holiness that cannot be defiled. That's the point. What's more, this holiness drives out impurity. Someone who is unclean can even touch Jesus and that person's impurity doesn't sully him that person's impurity is removed by him. Recall that this is not the first time that this has happened in Mark's gospel. In chapter 1, a leper comes along. We know lepers are unclean, and they carry around the skin of death. And so a leper approaching Jesus, that's 
a violation of the law as well. They were commanded to stay, stay their distance and sequester themselves. This leper asked Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. So he wasn't sure if Jesus would be willing to do that. And Jesus, again, here's that repetition. He reaches out his hand and he touches the leprous man. Jesus is not afraid. And what happens? Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean, and the leper was cleansed. This is our Lord with authority over all things. So we see that Jesus, according to Mark's gospel, we could call him super clean. Uh, You might remember uh, that character on the commercial, Mr. Clean, with those pristine white, you know, um, and the bald head. But uh, he has nothing on our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus cannot be made impure. So don't worry about that. Don't be afraid. Instead, everyone he comes into contact with, he cleanses them. And it's not that he becomes unclean. First the leper, then the woman with the discharge, uh, and then the little girl, because touching a dead person was something that rendered the Jews unclean. But not Jesus. So... uh, Note that if impurity truly is best understood in terms of the fall and the creation and the presence of death, then Jesus is the would have been the ultimate impurity given all the people that he touched and all the sins he took on upon himself. Thus, when the story continues with the resurrection of Jairus' daughter now, we see that Jesus' authority extends, hallelujah, even to death. And um, no, uh, back in those days, nobody could purify the leper. Nobody could heal, and no one could save a woman, uh, as Mark records, with that problem for 12 years. Jesus can literally raise the dead, as he does Jairus and Lazarus, and notice how he does this. He grabs the little girl's hand, and this would also uh, be an occasion for others as to becoming impure according to Numbers 19. And Jesus just proceeds out of love and compassion, not concerned. Uh, He cannot be defiled, not even by death, and not even by his own death. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, has authority over death. Take heart in that. And yet consider this great paradox. At the conclusion of this Gospel of Mark now, we will find that our Lord Jesus himself is going to die. That doesn't make sense. Not only is he going to die, Jesus is going to be crucified by uh, foreigners with their, uh, their laws. And instead of stoning, it will be crucifixion. Then his body is going to be transferred to a tomb. Jesus' dead body will lie in an unclean place. And he's already dead. The one with authority over death died. The Holy One of God became unclean, where the Father judged his son. So he would not have to judge you and me. So what's going on? Jesus explains simply in one verse, Mark ten forty five. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom in exchange for many. Why did the one with authority over death die? Why did the Holy One of God subject himself to all this impurity? This was done in order to save them and to save us from the very power of death itself. It was so Jesus can tell us, even in the midst of this fallen world, 
And this present evil age, he can say to you and to me, stop being afraid. Only believe. Um, The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, is coming back at the end of the age, as he promised, to raise the dead unto eternal life. Uh, Jesus Christ is coming again, and it will be that day when he banishes death forever, and so he finally purifies all his creation. Amen. What a day to look forward to. May the Lord God, our Heavenly Father, still your fears, strengthen your faith, and preserve you as we all await the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all of us on that last day. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Midweek Advent Sermon from Faith Lutheran Church in Moore Park, California. For more information, visit us on the web at faithmoorpark.com.